The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information about Jason can be found at deroshi-meyer.org. Today's a day to focus on promises and to consider how they relate to our pursuit of godliness. Turn with me, if you will, to Leviticus 26. Leviticus 26. My hope today is that I'm going to unpack for us the last two steps of our pursuit of holiness from the perspective of Leviticus. The first step in our pursuit of holiness was to celebrate past grace. And this book is loaded with it through the realm of a picture, the picture of sacrifice. And it becomes the generator of our displaying God. Those who are near me, in those who are near me, I will be sanctified. So I promised us two more steps and they're both going to come out of Leviticus 26. The call to holiness in the book of Leviticus is in the middle of the book. It begins in chapter chapter 11, be holy as I am holy. And it continues right up through chapter 25, be holy as I am holy. There's so much more I could go into in Leviticus, but we're looking at the frame. We've spent time looking at the past grace and today we're going to look at the future grace and our walk with God, our pursuit of God to overcome the sin that so easily entangles us happens between those two spheres. Remembering what's been purchased for us, what's happened in the past and remembering how what's been happened in the past influences our future. We cannot pursue holiness today unless we're confident that God is already 100% for us through Jesus. If we're pursuing holiness in an attempt to merit or to earn God's favor, it will be a complete loss. But if we recognize that the only sin that we can overcome is sin that's already been forgiven, hear that, the only sin we can overcome today whether it be lust or bitterness or prejudice or anger or covetousness, fear of man, fear of failure, whatever the sin may be, we cannot beat it. We cannot overcome it without blood-bought power. We have to be convinced that God is already with us, that He's for us, that, that all that we need is yes through the substitutionary work ultimately coming in Jesus. And with that, all those promises are given to us, call them future grace, to motivate us to a life of godliness. So the first step is past grace. That's where we've been. Draw near to God through the substitutionary work of Christ. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. Step two, trust in future grace. 
Place your faith in the covenant promises of blessing, curse, and restoration blessing. For Israel, it was the covenant blessings of, and curses of Leviticus 26. And I'm going to try to help us understand what we're to do with all those past blessings and curses. Because just because they're old covenant doesn't mean they don't relate to us. So pray with me as we move in this direction. Father, I'm asking for help. Meet us now and satisfy our souls with your promises so that the promises of Satan are not as attractive. Amen. Past grace, what has been accomplished in Christ, has secured every future grace that is needed for life and godliness. All the promises of God find their yes in Christ. This is why we pray in Jesus' name. It's not just a tag on the end of our prayer. In Jesus is everything because it's the only way we can actually approach God and expect favor. Not because of who we are, but because of who Jesus is. We pray in Jesus' name. So that's why he says that is why through him we utter our amen through him. And in doing so, it brings great glory to God. And here is our key verse for the day. And I'm going to suggest that the promises in the new covenant function exactly the same way the old covenant promises were revealed to function. Here it is. Why does God give promises in the old covenant and in the new? He has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them, so that by believing in them, by trusting in them, what? You may begin to look more like God. Become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption of the world brought about by evil desire. How are desires created? They're, des they're created through promises. Satan makes promises for a better tomorrow. Look at this. It will satisfy you. And we have to consider how do we say no? Pastor John's got an entire book on it called Future Grace. We battle the promises of the world and of the devil through raising up other promises that are more desirable, more powerful in motivating holiness. So at the beginning of the book of Leviticus is past grace, all the focus on the sacrifices, but at the end of the book, Leviticus 26, is the promises, and the holiness in the middle of the book lives between those two spheres. He has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature and escape the corruption of the world brought about by evil desire. Peter says the way to holiness is by focusing forward to the future in hope in light of blood-bought promises. So let's look at Leviticus 26. Leviticus 26 is set up in three sections all of which are significant. We're going to find our own period in history in Leviticus 26. It begins with 
blessings. You see that in the heading, beginning in verse 3. If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then blessings are going to shower down upon you. Verse 14. But if you will not listen to me and do all my commandments, if you spurn my statutes and if your soul abhors my rules so that you will not do all that I command you, but you break my covenant, then this is going to happen. Judgment. It's a picture of Israel's life. They enter into the land, they enjoy short-term blessing. But what follows, we're told, is curse. And the curse climaxes in their separation from the land. Just as Adam was kicked out of his promised land, called the Garden of Eden, Israel's kicked out of their promised land in exile. And Leviticus 26 tells the story of how it's going to play out in their history. And it climaxes with exile. But that's not the final word in Leviticus 26. Because God's final word is never curse. So look with me at Leviticus 26, verse 40. Here's the switch. We've seen blessing. We've seen curse. But the final portrait, and this is where history, according to the Old Testament, is supposed to end up. Not in curse, but in restoration blessing. And it begins in verse 40. But if, if in that day, experiencing exile, they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of the fathers, all that they've committed against me, verse 42, then I will remember. I'll remember those promises I made to Abraham. Verse 45, I'll remember the promises that I made through Moses. And I'll bring you back. If that uncircumcised heart gets circumcised, everything will change. Relationship will be restored. And when the Old Testament talks about this period of restoration, this return out of exile, it's talking about the new covenant age. We only see that that phrase, new covenant, show up one time. Jeremiah 31. 31. But the concept abounds all throughout the the Old Testament. This new covenant that God's going to make, this everlasting covenant, this covenant of peace. Here, when uncircumcised heart gets transformed, people repent and they return to God. He will restore them completely. So it's a picture of how the rest of the Bible is going to play out. Time in the land... Israel gets exiled, new covenant, new testament. So let's just take a peek at these things. Let's look at the blessings first. Go to the beginning of the chapter. The blessings. First thing I want us to see is that they are conditional. Old covenant blessings were conditional. And new covenant blessings... Too. If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then. See how that works? If, then. Now, what does that conditionality do for a people who knows they're prone to wander? In this book, what it should do is awaken them to move back to the beginning of the book and 
ground their lives in past grace because they know that they're not going to enjoy future grace apart from dwelling in past grace. But for Israel, that's not what they're going to do. They're not going to obey, but they're also not going to enjoy the grace of forgiveness because they don't repent. And that was a condition, conditional element to enjoying the mercy of sacrifice. They're not going to repent. First thing is that they're conditional. Next of all, blessings are a gift of God. They're not random. I will give, verse 4. If you obey, I will give your rains in their season. When blessing is enjoyed in the context of the world, the call is to have grateful hearts and to honor God. And Romans 1 says that's the problem with the world. The world has experienced the kindness of God and they have not, had, they have not been grateful nor have they honored me. Because all that we have comes from him. These are about provision. They're about protection. That's what the blessings were about. So provisions, things like, your threshing shall last to the time of the great grape harvest. Verse 5. And the grape harvest shall last to the time for sowing. See how that works. You're going to have so much, they're going to be trying to harvest And the season is going to run out for harvesting. It's going to be time to plant again. And they haven't stopped bringing in the bounty from the the year before. Much provision. And then protection. Verse 6. I will give peace in the land. You're going to lie down and not be afraid. Beasts won't come upon you. And enemies... They'll be fleeing from you rather than overpowering you. Verse 7. So I summarize all the blessings with two Ps. Provision and protection. And what the curses are going to be is the removal of all that provision and protection. And in God's removing it, He too is giving the curses. They're not random. They're brought by Him. This is important to notice. That the Old Covenant blessings were not just physical. They were physical and spiritual. So we see the physical element when it says, verse 4, I'll give rains and you'll get grapes. Or when it says very tangibly, the enemies will not encroach on the promised land. Verse 9, I'll turn to you and make you fruitful. But then notice verse 11. This is true physical fruitfulness, true physical protection, true physical provision. But then we come to verse 11. I will make my dwelling with you. My soul will not abhor you, and I will walk among you, and I will be your God, and you will be my people. The presence of God was promised as a blessing. Now why I pause here is, to, is because this is, in my mind, a very significant element. 
Because if you look in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 6, Paul quotes Leviticus 26, verse 12. He doesn't quote from the end of the chapter, which is restoration blessings. He quotes from the beginning of the chapter and says, Church, the Lord is dwelling in our midst. You are his people and he is your God. It's happened. And I scratch my head and I say, God, wait a second. I'm part of the new covenant. In Leviticus 26, I fall in the restoration blessing side. I don't fall in the blessing and curses side. That was conditional on obedience. But what you're saying is that I'm living in the period of restoration blessing and somehow quoting exactly from the blessing section, not the restoration blessing section, the blessing section, specifically a spiritual blessing, not a physical one, you're saying, Paul, that I in the church am a recipient of that particular spiritual blessing. God is with me. And I look at my own life and I say, but I haven't lined up. How can I enjoy a blessing? And then I remember, oh, All of redemptive history hinges not on me, but on one called the last Adam. On Jesus, who came as the ultimate Israelite and obeyed where Israel failed. And it was his obedience perfectly to the law that secured every blessing. And I'm in him. Paul is able to quote from the Old Covenant blessings in 2 Corinthians 6. And what it suggests to me is that all those Old Covenant blessings, not just the spiritual ones, but I'll touch on how the physical ones as well, are part of the restoration blessings, but in escalation. So all of a sudden, I get to enjoy the Old Covenant blessings in Jesus, who was Israel, He was the representative Israelite, the ultimate king who did what Israel was supposed to do. And he secured those blessings and I am in him and I get to enjoy those blessings. But as we're going to see, Christ has two comings and what we're told in Ephesians 1 is that he has secured for us every spiritual blessing which would make sense why Paul would quote from 2 Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians 6 to only Leviticus 12, 26, 12. And he didn't mention the freedom from enemy oppression and all the physical provision of the land. Jesus has secured every spiritual blessing now in the hope of the complete inheritance. The Holy Spirit is the down payment of a full inheritance that will come when he returns again. And with that, every physical blessing on a new heavens and a new earth with new bodies, with no more tears, no more pain, no more decay, and all the provision that I could ever want. But I'm not there yet. And the problem with the health-wealth gospel is that they over-anticipate It's not that they're going back to the Leviticus 26 and they're saying, look it, look it. And I don't think the answer is to say, no, that's Old Covenant. Rather, the answer is to say, 
Yes, but not fully yet. Already, yes, in Jesus, but every spiritual blessing. He is with us in the midst of our sea of suffering today as we anticipate full inheritance, which will not simply be spiritual, but will be physical in the presence of God forever. Curses, reversal of the blessings. Restoration blessing. As representative of Israel and humanity, Christ took on himself the old covenant curse of Israel. He bore it in his body. Here's how Paul talks. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming the curse. Exile for Israel was just a picture of ultimately what Jesus experienced at the cross. Separation from his father. Our sins being bore on his body. All the way to the ultimate climax. The ultimate curse was always death. Jesus bore it in himself. Why? Verse 14. So that in Christ Jesus, the promises of Genesis might finally come. Through you, Abraham, the world will be blessed. Jesus is the ultimate offspring of Abraham. He is Israel. He bears the curse, and now through him, blessing can come because God's wrath has been abated. He's no longer against us. He's for us. And blessing can reach us. For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might be the righteousness of God. Christ inaugurated the new covenant. That means he kicked it off. Restoration blessing happens in him. So Leviticus 26 has three sections, blessing, curse, restoration, blessing. Jesus is being portrayed as the one who bears the curse of Israel, and what was to happen on the other side of curse was blessing. Not only for Israel, but finally, if they could be the blessing, the nations would enjoy the blessing. Remember, the whole world is against God. The whole world is in a problem at this point. God had set Israel apart so that they might be missionaries and carry out the greatness of God. And Israel fails in their mission until they get dwindled down to one who displays God perfectly, who is the image of God. And through him, blessing can come. 2 Corinthians 6.16, I said 6, 16 is the verse. And Ephesians 1.3, as we await every future provision and protection. So Pastor John has been known to say, this is what faith is. Faith is trusting all that God is for us in Jesus. That's future-oriented. He's my hope. He's my help. He's, he's what I need. He will be there when I am lonely, when I'm broken, when I'm tired. He's going to show up, and I'm having to trust in that. And it's hard when it doesn't feel like it's happening. Something that we don't often think of, but I think it's important to recognize. The Old Covenant had blessings and curses, the new covenant 
has blessings and curses. Jesus talks to those who think they're his disciples. And he gives them a parable about the sheep and the goats. You call me Lord, Lord? I did all these things in your name. Depart from me, I never knew you. There are sheep and there are goats. And Jesus is going to distinguish them. He gives both blessings and woes. This isn't woe like the fawns. This is woe like curse. Listen to Paul talking to the church in Rome. See if you can hear the blessing and the curse in the promises of Paul. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. The kindness and the severity. Severity toward those who have fallen, but kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. But here's the difference. For the church, Israel, sorry, let me go back to Israel. They heard those same kinds of things. Blessings and curses. For the church, who gets a divinely reshaped heart, blood-bought faith, all of a sudden, we hear a warning like, don't be deceived, God is not mocked. The sexually immoral, the idolater, the drunkard, the man who practices orgies, he will not inherit the kingdom of God. We hear the warning, and it works. We hear it, and we recognize true danger is in front of those who fail to follow. God is life. And if I go the other way, I'm moving away from life, and the only opposite is death. And I recognize that. For those who hear the warnings in the New Testament... For those who are true believers, I will suggest, the warnings function as they're supposed to. They're promises that are designed through them, you will partake of the divine nature. Not just the hope of blessing, but the dread of curse is used as a gift of God to motivate us toward holiness. He's granted to us His precious and very great promises so that through them we may partake of the divine nature. My dad has celiac. Um, So he can't have any gluten in his diet. And in the beginning when he first found it out, there was a little temptation once in a while. He would see one of my mom's sweet rolls and he would remember how sweet they were. But now when I talk to him, he says there's no, no desire because he knows how much pain it will cause in his abdomen. And the mere confidence that his eating of that sweet roll will bring him great torment is enough. His, his absolute confidence in what is true about the future alters his action in the present. 
What he anticipates in the future changes who he is today. It works both with fear of dread and hope in blessing. And God, all through Scripture, in the Old Covenant and the New, motivates holiness by laying forth promises, not only of the blessing side, but of the warning side. Listen to how the writer of Hebrews talks right after giving, is giving the church a big warning in chapter 6. Don't you realize that if you fall away, you're never coming back? If you're like Israel, church, if you as an individual who have seen the glory of God, your eyes have been enlightened, you've tasted of the heavenly food, the heavenly bread, the manna, if you're like them and you fall away, you're not going to reach the promised land. That's the story in chapter 6. It's comparing Israel to the wilderness generation and using images. They even experience the Holy Spirit. You're not coming back, he says, if you let yourself run this way. But then he says this. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, we have hope. We feel sure of better things for you, things that belong to salvation. This is how the promises are supposed to work. If, if you're truly caught up in the new covenant, if you're blood-bought, there's a security there because, not just because you're looking back to past grace, but you're confident that the future grace is going to motivate you. God, you're going to do the work in me. I have better things in mind for you, things that belong to salvation, a greater confidence, and we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope. How do I get that full assurance of hope? So that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. That's how it happens. It doesn't happen without faith and endurance and patience, but we've got a great cloud of witnesses who have already made it into the stadium. They've run across the finish line and they've gone and sat in the stands and now we've entered in and they're cheering us on. That's how Hebrews 11 begins. Sorry, it's how Hebrews 11 ends. Chapter 12 starts, now in view of this great cloud of witnesses, that's who he's talking about. And God, by His grace, has made Himself worth, worthy enough to hold their trust. And the writer of Hebrews says, I have that kind of confidence for you. You're going to be like that group who, when you hear the warning, it actually moves you to run from that sin toward God. That's what happens with blood-bought people. Because it's not dependent on us, it's blood-bought power that's at work in us. It's blood-bought hungers that move us to overcome the sin that's already been forgiven. Perseverance of the saints. Because Christ took our curse and because he's granted blood-bought power for perseverance, hear me, it's not perfection overnight, but it's a new progression over a lifetime in a new direction. Because Christ has granted blood-bought power and because he took the curse... Christians will never, real Christians will never experience the curses of God's severity. But it's not, the answer is not to say that those promises aren't in the new covenant. 
It's just that for blood-bought people, they're going to work the way they're supposed to and develop a partaking of divine nature life. Through the promises, you will partake of the divine nature. That's what's going to happen. We don't want to go toward destruction. We want life. Why do we want it? Because God has done a work in our hearts. But we still stumble. But God brings us back. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. He's talking to the church and he's saying, guard yourselves. The most important muscle for a marathoner is his heart. And the life, this race of life that we are in between the first and second comings of Christ, where we are the body of Christ and like him and his body had to experience mass suffering before he received the resurrection glory. We now as the body of Christ have to go through hard, hard things. And the writer of Hebrews says, recognize the hardness of it and make sure your heart is right. Take care lest there be in any of you an evil unbelieving heart leading you to fall away, to stop trusting. The brokenness around me is so great I don't know if I can keep going. The struggle that I'm having with my child is so great I don't know if I can keep going. Guard yourself that you don't lose faith. That's unbelieving. But that your heart be strong, trusting in Him, trusting in blood-bought power, looking on past grace and all that it's secured for us. And then what does He say? Don't live alone. Verse 13, exhort one another daily. That means I need you and you need me. We need this Sunday school class. We need our small groups. Exhort one another daily as long as it's called the day so that you will not give in to sin's deceitfulness. That means I'm not strong enough to make it without you. Now why? Why does it say to guard my heart and to exhort one another? Listen to this. Because, because, for, verse 14, for we've come to share in Christ if we hold firmly to the end the confidence we had at the beginning. And if you find yourself, if, if somebody stumbles and never returns, what does it mean? They weren't sharing in Christ from the beginning. We have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly to the end. But if you've got that past grace of being in Christ, all oh, the confidence that we can have, even when we blow it over and over again, God's God, my hope for tomorrow to wake up trusting in you in the midst of the sea of trial is you. I am in Christ. I am in Christ. And you can help me, give me the perseverance that I need. You have come to share in Christ if you hold firmly to the end. Those who are truly in Christ hold firmly to the end the confidence that we had at the beginning. What does John say? They went out from us. They didn't persevere. They didn't hold on. They went out from us, but they were not of us. No. They may have looked like it for a time, but they were not of us. How do I know? For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might be plain to all that they were not of us. Because true blood-bought saints, because of the nature of the power, because it's all about Jesus, will persevere. And there's unbelievable hope in that. 
And this is supposed to be fuel for our souls as we consider the promises of God and all that has been secured for us in Jesus. So I don't know where your battle is today. I've got a list of some verses on here, and then I've put a whole bunch more on my, on my PowerPoint. And everyone demands a sermon that I can't give. But what I, as I'm, gonna, I'm just going to read them, and you might say, that's my problem. That's my struggle. If you've got a different one and you're wondering what promise do I latch out on, write me and I'll look for it for you. Okay? So, blood-bought promises. And notice how they are not only of blessing, but they're also of curse. And they're supposed to motivate us away from sin and to God. This is how it's supposed to work. So let's just see it. If you're struggling with anxiety, but if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? It's a faith issue. Will you trust him? Therefore, don't be anxious, saying, what am I going to eat? What am I going to drink? Am I going to be able to take care of my family? I don't have the job right now. For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows what you need. Do you know it? He knows what you need, and he cares for you. He's, he's a father, maybe a father that you've never had. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. What would call me? What would motivate me? To seek righteousness, to seek God, rather than to get bogged down in the world's stuff, the world's ways, because there's a promise attached to it. All these things will be added unto you. If you seek, you will find. Sufficient for the day is this trouble, therefore don't be anxious. Don't be anxious, for tomorrow has enough anxieties. And Philippians 4 Don't be anxious about anything. Why, Paul? How am I going to do that? But with everything, with prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, make your request known to God. Where's the thanksgiving fit? That's past grace. Remember the past grace. Remember all that's been won. And then pray to God, and the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your heart and your minds in Christ Jesus. That's future grace. And it's designed to motivate it. I want that kind of a peace. And we battle the anxiety, the lies that the devil brings, that life is too hard, that this situation is too big, that my child is too difficult. We battle that through trusting the promise that peace will come if I pray with thanksgiving. Anxiety. How about bitterness? You find yourself having been hurt deeply. Maybe it's a former spouse. Maybe it was a father, an old boyfriend, a work, uh, uh, your boss, a co-worker. And you see it's very difficult for you to love. What kind of promise could motivate you to have a life of love rather than a life of rage? Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. That seems so hard. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live at peace with all. Can you give me a promise that could help me? Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay. That's wild. 
that I can gain hope and power to love because I can know that God knows how much pain I'm going through and he takes it seriously and he will fight against what's been done against you. And that's the promise that's supposed to motivate my life. Or how about this one? Here's a scary one. If you forgive others their trespass, your heavenly Father will forgive you. Oh, I want that forgiveness, God. I want that. But if you will not forgive your neighbor his trespass against you, your heavenly Father will not forgive you. Does that break down anger in your soul? Does it make you willing to, God, help me. Help me to remember how much I've been loved, how much I didn't deserve your love. Crush my pride. Crush, crush the wall that's been put around my heart. It's broken and I just want to give it to you because it's, it's so hurt but enable me to be the man, the woman that I can't be on my own. With you, all things are possible, so make it happen right now. I want to be able to forgive. I want to be able to respond with good rather than with evil. Covetousness. Every time you see that Ford F-150 drive by, something goes on in your soul and you say, Ugh, I want it. And it even leads you to acts that are not healthy. Or... Your neighbors got that 55-inch massive screen and you're still working on your 10-inch, uh, whatever it used to be called, um, non-digital signal. And you've got the, one of those f- boxes that came free from the state and it just works in your soul like, I, I hate this, I hate this. God, how long? Will you believe that God, when he says, I will never leave you or forsake you, that that's enough? Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have because I have said, I will never leave you. God, make my heart be content enough that I can just receive your presence and say, it's good, that's good. How radical would it be for your family to open up into an adoption? Many of your friends are heading to Alaska on cruises or to the Caribbean or taking big vacations and you decide we're going to take all of our savings to rescue a child. What would make you do that kind of radical thing Because you say, this life is short and eternity is long. And I've been created with mission. That's why I'm here. And I can do something radical. That is contrary to everything else the world would be saying, but I know that you are with me. And you have promised I will supply all of your needs according to my riches and glory through Christ Jesus. How about lust? Hear the promise. It's the pure in heart who will see God. How much do you want to see him? And is that enough of a promise to motivate you to not look, to not pursue? How much do you want to live? 
I say to you, everyone that looks upon a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that one loses one of his own members than that his whole body be thrown into hell. Do you believe that promise or do you say it's not real? If you believe the promise, it will help you partake of the divine nature and escape the corruption of the world that's brought about by evil desire. Fear of man... Don't fear man, those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny and not one of them falls to the ground? Even the hairs of your head are numbered. God knows what you're going through. He knows what what could cause you to say, I'm going to leave a great Christian doctorate uh, practice where I'm a doctor and go all the way to Chad, into the boonies of the desert. What could make you do that with your family of four children or five children? I don't know what's going to happen, God, to move into this Muslim hostile area with my own family. Don't you know that God cares for the sparrow and you are much, you're worth much more than a sparrow? Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than they. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before the Father. But whoever denies me before men, I will deny. Hear the promise and let it motivate your soul to holiness. Fear of failure. God, I'm too small. I'm too weak. I've messed up on this so many other times in the past. I can't beat it. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you and uphold you. That's a real promise that I bank my hope in. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness, and God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Do you want grace? Then allow the brokenness in your own life to be viewed as a channel for humility and dependence on God and find the grace coming full bore through blood-bought security. Fear of rejection or condemnation. God, my sin is too big and you can't overcome it. In Jesus, there is now no condemnation. Who shall bring any charge against God elect? God's the one who justifies and he sent Jesus to die. So believe it. You stand free. How dirty Last week we were talking about that purity. You might feel like you're so filthy because you've been abused sexually. And God says, clean, clean in Jesus. There's hope there. For I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers, height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate you from the love of God. Bank your life on that promise. God, I'm far, I, I've, I've turned from you. I've failed you. I've treated my wife like I should not treat them. I haven't been the dad or, that I should have been. I, I've been uh, wrong in, in my work practices. But in Christ I stand. And your love is real to me. Now help me be a man that I haven't been. Help me be a woman that I haven't been. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one is able to snatch them out of my hand. Bank your life on that kind of a promise and help it get you out of bed in the morning when you've sinned against your spouse the previous night.
fear of failure to persevere. I am sure of this, that he who began the good work in you will be will bring it to completion. And now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Hear the promise. He who called you is faithful. He, he will surely do it. That was a lot. I hope it's food for your soul. I hope you wrote those promises. Put them in your Bible. God wants us to trust his promises of future grace and receive his promises of warning as a means for holiness. It was true in the old covenant, it's true in the new. But today we are where Israel never was. We rest in all that God is for us in Jesus. And in that, in him, there is much hope. Father, go with us, we pray. Encourage our hearts and sustain. Help us look more like you even in the seas of suffering. Help us look to you as the author and the perfecter of our faith. In Jesus we ask, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others. But please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at bcsmn.org. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at deroshi-meyer.org. Proclaiming the Kingdom and treasuring a God who rules, saves, and satisfies through covenant for His glory in Christ.